Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 16. We come to the end of a month-long study in the life of Samson. It's been an incredible journey. I don't know about you, but I've been learning things that I never knew about Samson. Some of you have told me you feel like you knew who Samson was, and then as we've been going through and learning new aspects of who he is, sometimes more horrifying, sometimes more um, God-glorifying, you just felt like you've run into a new character. You've never met this person before. And I, I feel the same way. As I've been studying through this, I thought I knew who Samson was, and now uh, I, I really feel like I have a deeper understanding of who he is. I, I feel like he's my friend to a certain degree. I don't know if my mom would have wanted me hanging out with him if he was here and we'd be friends, but... I'm very sad to move on from his life. And before we move on, what I wanted to do is I want to just take an umbrella view, a, a sky-level view of the life of Samson. I want to I linger one last sermon on Samson's life as a whole from chapter 13 through 16. We've learned a lot from this man. We've learned a lot from these chapters We've talked a lot about usefulness versus faithfulness. We've talked about how Samson was incredibly useful to God, but that did not equate with faithfulness. Uh, just because you're useful to God doesn't mean you're pleasing to God. What actually pleases God is your allegiance to Him, your trust in Him, and your love for Him. We talked a lot about being alone, how Samson was just an island, and that Christianity was never meant to be lived out in isolation. And He's a great example of what it looks like to uh, live the Christian life by yourself, with nobody there to say, hey, this is what the Word says, you shouldn't be doing these things. And we've also seen the amazing grace of God on display. But I think there's more to be gleaned from him, and I think as we look just from a high-level view of who he is and his life in general, we'll pull out some main points of the life of Samson and of our uh, living of our daily life in light of who he is and in light of how God worked through him, saved him, set him apart for ministry, and how God shared his lavish grace on Samson at the end of his life. So before we dive in, let's pray, ask God's blessing on our time. God, thank you so much for another opportunity that we have to open your word. What a privilege. So many people wish they could be doing this right now, some through fear of persecution, some through not even having a Bible in their own translation, in their own language. They're not able to do what we're doing, what we have taken for granted. God, may we not take it for granted this morning. God, thank you for Samson. Thank you for putting his story here in sacred scripture. And thank you for giving us details of his character, even in the book of Hebrews, that we know how he finished his race and that you held him fast. Not by his own ability did he make it to heaven, but because of your grace. So Father, I pray that you would be gracious to us this morning. Open our eyes to see ourselves in this account. We are just like Samson. We're just like Israel. So help us as we linger one last time on the life of this man to get as much as we can out of his failures and out of his faith. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold these things, wonderful truths from your law. We need you to give us the gift of illumination if we're to come away 
with anything of value from our time together. So we say with Samuel, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. The first summary statement of Samson's life that I want to give to you, and and we'll go through these just point by point. Samson, let's look at Samson as a tragic figure. Um, Samson as a tragic figure, a tragic figure. Tragic, yes, sad, but tragic by the very strict definition of a tragedy in literal, uh, a literary sense. Um, A tragedy in writing, a tragedy in, you know, many tragedies, works of tragedy in literature. So in a literal sense, in a literarily looking at sense, a dramatic work, a tragedy is a dramatic work depicting a protagonist that's engaged in a morally significant struggle that ends in ruin or profound disappointment. So they're engaged in some struggle and it ends badly And usually in a tragedy, it ends badly because of something in them that was once their strength, but became their liability. That's exactly what we see in Samson. His life ends badly because what was once his strength became his greatest liability. In drama, when a noble protagonist is brought to ruin as a consequence of some extreme quality that they possess... It's their greatness, it's their downfall together. That's a tragedy. And Samson had strength, literally had strength. His main strength was his power and his might, but he also had ambition. He also had a vision for what he wanted Israel to be able to be freed from the Philistines and for all the the flack that we give Samson, rightfully so, at least he knew that Philistine people were for fighting, not for cohabitating with. He knew these are our enemies. They should be destroyed. They should be put away. But Samson had come to believe that the strength that he possessed was his own. Not until the very end of his life did he realize, no, this is from God and God alone. He believed the strength that he possessed was his, not a gracious gift from God. The more that God blessed Samson with strength, the more that we see Samson growing confident in some invincibility that he thinks he has. Remember, as we walked through, he just gets more reckless and more reckless until the opening of chapter 16, he's going to the capital of Philistia. He's going to Gaza, where they have centered their entire capital city. And he says, I can find a prostitute here in Gaza and hang out because I'm invincible. Nothing can get to me. And the more that God blessed Samson, the more reckless Samson became. In other words, we can say it this way. Samson looked at God's blessing him as reason to be able to forget God altogether. Samson thought, God has blessed me, therefore I don't need to worry about God. God gave me something, therefore I can move away from God. I'm invincible. I have power on my own. The more that God blessed Samson with strength, the more he thought, I don't need God. A Puritan writer, John Flavel, says it this way, outward gains, like Samson's strength, he gained something. Outward gains are ordinarily attended with inward losses, while conversely, inward gains, such as growth and humility, self-control, wisdom, are ordinarily attached to outward losses, like loss of finances, careers, or relationships falling apart. Samson gained strength externally, blessed by God, And in gaining that strength externally, inwardly, he thought, I don't need God. 
He moved away from God. That's really the entire premise of the book of Job. Remember the book of Job? Um, Where does it all begin? It all begins with Satan saying, God, uh, you have this servant named Job. God's the one who says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, yes, I've considered him. And he only loves you because of the outward blessing that you've given to him. He's only loving you because you're blessing him. Take away the blessings, he won't love you. God says, I'll take that bet, takes away the blessings. Job still loves him, still trusts him. And Satan is proven yet again to not be as valuable as God. Job says, I love God, not for what he can give to me, but because of who he is. I love God for God. Samson loved God in so much as God was blessing him with strength. And you can see how our sin and God's grace are so diametrically opposed to one another. In God's grace, he takes our weaknesses and our failures and he uses them for us. He blesses us even in the midst of our sin. But in our sin, we take even his good gifts and the things that he's given to us to bless us and we take them and we use them to say, we don't need you. Our sinful hearts always find ways to use even God's blessing to ruin our lives. So, I think a great question that we must ask ourselves is what what strength might God give to us? Maybe he's already given it to you. Maybe you can see something in your life, in, in the external outward manifestations of a blessing, and you look to that and you say, this has become a liability to me because it has made me forget who God is, forget what he's done. Maybe you're incredibly smart and you start to think, I don't need God because I'm smart enough to do this on my own. Maybe you're incredibly successful in a business sense. Maybe you have a lot of money. That's why the author in Proverbs, uh, I believe it's Augur at the time, says, um, God, please do not give me more or less. Don't make me so poor that I start stealing and don't make me so rich that I forget you altogether. Just give me enough day to day. Give me enough to live on so that I remember my dependence upon you. What is it? Is it your ambition, your strength? Is it your intellect? Is it some way that God's blessed you? I don't know what it is for you. But know this, your greatest strengths will become your greatest liabilities when you take pride in the strength that you have and you think it's yours. So know that the greatest strength that God's given to you that you can use to bless him can also be used by the devil to make you forget that you need God. That's Samson's life as a tragedy, a tragedy on display. Number two, Samson, Samson's life is an example of failure, obviously. Samson's life is an example of failure. Not only a tragedy looking at a strength that became a liability, but also a, an example of failure. He's the epitome of the entire book of Judges. All that is wrong in the book of Judges is encapsulated in Samson. Remember, Samson himself is a mirror image of Israel. God chose Israel. God chose Samson. God called Israel. God called Samson. God pleaded with them to turn only to him, and both Samson and Israel chase after other gods, and they always think that they can just run back to God whenever they feel like it. Everyone's doing that which is right in their own eyes. That's the main failure of Samson. He's just doing what is right in his own eyes. When we finish the book of Judges, which the last verse in Judges, uh, chapter 21, verse 25, is going to tell us, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There's no king in Israel. Everybody's just doing what's right in their own eyes. And when you get to the end of Judges, we're going to look back and we're going to think, what just happened? Especially these next few chapters, 
Nothing good happens in these next few chapters that we're going to cover. Chapter 17, all the way through the end of the book, nothing good happens. It's all devastating. We're going to get to the end, and we're going to think, what happened? And, and what happened is exactly what happened in Samson's life. When you do what is right in your own eyes, you think you are the moral standard. You can figure out the moral standard. Judges is what happens in your life. It's very interesting. There's even an ironic judgment of our God upon Samson that they gouged out his eyes. Remember, they took him, they gouged him out. He did that which was right in his own eyes, so he ends up losing his eyes. Same thing is true for us. When we start doing what's right in our own eyes to grab sin, we not only don't get what we're wanting, but we lose the very thing that we're trying to keep. The man who did that which was right in his own eyes lost his own eyes. If your eyes are the standard, then that standard's going to be taken away from you. We do the exact same thing. We functionally buy into this in many ways, but I just want to look at two ways that I believe were very similar to Samson in doing that which is right in his own eyes. Number one, Samson seemed to want to be like other people. One of the examples inside of his failure is that he seemed to want to be like other people. He really liked the world. Israel was supposed to be holy, but they wanted to be like all the other nations. Remember, the book of Judges is the canonization of Israel. They're becoming more pagan and pagan and pagan. And by the time they're done with the book of Judges, they don't look any different than Sodom and Gomorrah. Samson, too, wanted to be like everybody else. And R.A. Webb says it this way, Do we desire to be like other non-believers? If we are saints by our divine calling, we cannot be as other men, and we should never want to be as other men. A Christian who lives in a manner incongruous with Christ's calling also risks evil consequences. God may not say anything now, but eventually he will call you out and call you to give an account. It's a great quote that reminds us, as Samson wanted to be like the world, and he wanted what the world had to offer, it destroyed him. And so too for believers. This is why John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, don't be like the world. Don't love the things of the world. Don't be enticed by the things of the world because they're not eternal. Your heavenly Father is against them and you don't want to be against him. As we'll see in James chapter 4, if you are in love with the world, you are an adulterer with Christ. You cannot love the world and Christ at the same time. So we see Samson loved to be like the world. He wanted to be like the world. But we also see that he had one main idol that just sunk his ship. This was the one main Achilles heel. For him, it was his idolatry of women. But my question is for us, what is our idolatry? So number one, he loved to be like the world. He wanted to be like the world. Number two, he had one supreme idol that he never could get rid of. He had one supreme idol that he never could get rid of. From his first Philistine wife to a prostitute in chapter 16 to Delilah, Samson never conquers his lust. And he's not alone by any stretch of the imagination in the Bible. Just look at Solomon. Right? Solomon had so many wives and concubines because he had a heart that was filled with lust that he never conquered. So both the strongest man who ever lived, Samson, and the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, were both completely undone by the idolatry of women, lusting after women. And again, maybe that's the case for you. Maybe it's not women. Maybe it's some other lust that you have. But there are idols in our hearts that I don't, 
I don't think we should move away from Samson's life without asking the question, is there an idol that I'm clinging to that will be my undoing? Maybe it's not as externally manifested. Is there an idol in my life? Is there a competing affection in my heart that will be my undoing? It was just one for Samson. He had just one competing affection, and it destroyed him. So he had a a desire to be like the world. Maybe we desire that. We want our own rules. We want some moral relativism. We want to be able to be our own standard. Maybe we live for what they live for, money, power, fame. And maybe we don't confront our idols. So let me just plead with you. We're, we're three months in to 2019. And I, as I was thinking through the life of Samson, he never checked his sin. It just kept on compounding over and over and over again. It's like Dave Ramsey's debt snowball, only the really bad sin snowball that just keeps growing and growing and growing. Is there a snowball of sin in your own life that's growing from 2018 into 2019 that you haven't checked, that you're just allowing to keep rolling over and over and and amassing more damage? Don't let the sin of last year drag into this year unchecked. Ask God to reveal to you where that one form of idolatry might be, and maybe he'll open up a, a whole bunch of other idols. But we've seen Samson as not only a a man who is an example of just tragedy on display, but also an example of failure. He did not conquer the idols in his life. That leads to number three, and this is the last point, and this is where we have to camp because we get to the end of Judges, and then we go to Hebrews, and we see that he's a man of faith. So point number three, Samson, let's look at Samson as a man of faith, and we first ask ourselves, how? How is this a man of faith? How is this somebody that we should be like? How should we emulate anything that he did? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32 says that Samson is in the hall of fame of faith. How? What is the model that he has given to us? You remember the end of chapter 16? He cries out, if you're there, he cries out in verse 28, in the temple of Dagon, O Lord God, O my Master and Yahweh, my personal Savior, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. How is that a model of faith that we should follow? There's aspects of it. He wants to be avenged, and I don't think it's only because of his two eyes. I think he wants to be avenged because he knows the Philistines are pagan worshipers and he knows the shame that we talked about last week that he has dragged Yahweh's name into the shame of his sin and the consequences of his sin such that the Philistines are saying Dagon is more powerful than Yahweh. So I think he's saying not only my eyes but your name, avenge yourself. But more than that, it's the beginning when he says please remember me. What he's doing is he's calling upon the loving kindness of God. Our Bibles use that word loving kindness, sometimes mercy, sometimes gracious, compassion. It's that Hebrew word hesed. And hesed is a covenant-keeping love, a love that is not conditioned on anything that you can do. You can't merit hesed love. Hesed love is not earned. Hesed love, my favorite definition of hesed, God's hesed love, is when the one from whom I have no right to expect anything gives me everything. When the one from whom I have 
No right to expect anything. I have no right to think that God's ever going to give me anything. And yet he lavishes everything upon me. That's Hesed love. Believing that about our God, believing that that is who he is and that's what he does, that's faith. And that's what Samson's showing us. Samson's showing us faith in God by saying, I know I have no right to expect anything from you, but I'm going to ask you nonetheless that you would help me. One of my favorite examples of this is in Luke chapter 7. Go to Luke chapter 7 really quickly. Luke chapter 7. The gospel of Luke. There are seven Greek words. Now we're in the New Testament, so we're back to Greek instead of Hebrew. There are seven Greek words that can be translated amazed, astonished, in awe, or astounded. And Luke uses every single one of the seven Greek words that can be translated for that. His book is filled with this sense of wonder and amazement. And it's always people that are amazed at what Jesus is doing, and rightly so. His gospel also uses, most of the time when you see those two words, amazed or astounded, he uses them together. Um, he, he just wants to say they're amazed and astounded. They're in awe and they're astounded. They're in awe and they're amazed. He's just constantly putting before us the amazement of who Jesus is and what he's done. And he is the only gospel that uses all seven of those Greek words. But you get to chapter 7 and you're wondering, because you've just seen how everybody is amazed at Jesus and what Jesus can do. And you start to wonder, does anything amaze Jesus? Does anything amaze Jesus? You've seen everybody is amazed by Jesus, but is there anything that amazes Jesus? And Luke chapter 7 gives us the answer to that question. So, Verse 1, Jesus completes all the discourse in the hearing of the people, and he goes to Capernaum, and a centurion slave, and this centurion who is highly regarded by him, that this slave is highly regarded, he's sick, and he's about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And so they go to Jesus. And they earnestly implore him, saying, listen to what these Jewish men say. So the centurion has a slave. He loves the slave. He's highly regarded. And the centurion says to these Jewish men, please go to Jesus and ask Jesus to help. And listen to what the Jews believe is the best way to approach Jesus, to call upon Jesus for help. They say this, he is worthy for you to grant this to him. He's worthy for you to do this because he loves our nation. So he's a Gentile, but he loves the Jews. He's halfway between becoming uh, a disciple of Jewish people. And he built our synagogue. So he gave some enormous donation so that the synagogue could be built. So he's worthy. Jesus, we want to tell you about this man because we want you to know before he asks you something, know his character, know his merit, know his worth. He's a God-fearer in some respect of that word because he is um, a, a lover of the Jewish people. He loves their God. He's at least keeping some form of these three pillars in Judaism of fasting and praying and giving to the poor. He's made an extra donation that's extravagant to the Jewish community for this new synagogue. So sum it all up for a Jewish person in their mind, this man is worthy. Do this for him, Jesus, because he is worthy. He's done all the right things. He deserves all the favor that you could give to him. He has the right to expect something. 
And by the way, this isn't arrogance in their mind. This is just the way that the system works for Jewish people and for a lot of us as well. I do something, I earn something, I get a reward in return. So they go to Jesus on the basis of this man's worth, his merit, and they say he deserves, he's worthy. Now, verse 6, Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent his friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just to say the word and my servant would be healed. For I'm also a man placed under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. I'm not worthy. The Jews say, he's worthy, and this man says, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve it. The Jews say, he deserves it, and he himself says, I don't deserve anything. But that's not what amazes Jesus. It's really common sense. If you can just take a second and look inward and realize we really don't deserve anything, it's common sense to say, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve anything. That's not what amazes Jesus. What amazes Jesus is that this man says, though I am not worthy, I'm still going to ask you to work. That's what amazes him. Verse 9, now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. He's amazed by him. And he turned and he said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found that the slave was in good health. Isn't it interesting? This starts with a verse about a slave that's dying, and it just ends with verse 10, like, he's fine. Like, there's no real care for this slave anymore. It's just, he's he's okay, because the issue isn't about this slave anymore. The the lens is focused on this man's interaction with Jesus. For this man to say, number one, I'm not worthy. That's great. That's a great first step. And I believe that every single one of us at some point in our lives has said that. I think every single one of us at some point has said, I'm not worthy. I haven't deserved anything. I don't deserve anything. But that's not what amazes God. What amazes Jesus here is that this man says, though I have no right to expect anything from you, I'm still going to ask you to do something. All you have to do is say a word. Just say the word and you can do it. Instead of saying, I don't have any right to expect anything from you, uh, so I'm just going to leave. He says, I have no right to expect it, but I'm still going to ask. I'm still going to ask. And that's exactly what Samson did. When Samson says, remember me, he's doing exactly what this man does. He's saying, I have no right to expect anything from you because I have no reason to deserve. I've done nothing to merit your grace or your favor, your kindness to me. And yet Samson doesn't just sit there and say, so woe is me. He says, but God, will you do something? Not because I've earned it, but because of your goodness. This reminds us of that Syrophoenician woman. You remember her? In the Gospel of Mark, we, we meet the Syrophoenician woman who says, will you please take care of my daughter? She has a demon. Um, please heal her. And she keeps on begging Jesus to do it. And Jesus says, no, I, I'm not going to give the food to the dogs. And instead of getting offended by that statement, because Jesus just used a parable to call her a dog, she says, no, I am a dog. I don't deserve anything from you. I don't deserve anything. I have no right to expect anything from you. But I'll still ask. 
Not on the basis of my goodness will you work, but on the basis of your goodness will you work. Not on the basis of my ability to deserve anything, but on the basis of your kindness to give me everything. Will you work? And Jesus, yet again, just like in Luke chapter 7, is amazed. He marvels. There's never been such faith in all of Israel. This is what Samson did. He stands in those two pillars. He said, God, will you help me? And then the beautiful thing is he doesn't just stop there. I would have asked, God, can you help me? Give me strength to do this. And then please give me a sign that you've given me the strength. Because I'll have like an aneurysm just trying to push on these walls if you're not helping me. What does he do? He says, God, I have no right to earn anything. I have no right to expect anything. I have no right. I've done nothing to deserve your help. But I'm going to ask you anyway for your help. And then I'm going to act. I'm going to start pushing because I believe in your Hesed love, your covenant-keeping love, your love that though I have no right to expect anything, lavishes everything upon me. That's why Samson is a model of faith. That's why Samson is in Hebrews chapter 11, because he says at the end of his life, terribly lived, he says, God, I have no right to expect anything. I'm not asking you on the basis of my goodness. I'm asking on the basis of your goodness. And by faith, I'm going to follow through. I'm going to live the way that you've called me to live. I'm going to do as I'm praying, God, give me strength. I know that you give grace to those who are humble, and I'm going to push on these pillars. And God works. So we see Samson as a tragic figure. We see Samson as an example of failure. We see Samson as an example of faith. And as we conclude, I, I, I thought it would be helpful for me personally, as I read this account, I'm left with one last foundational principle for the way that we should live our lives. And it's this. There is always hope. There's always hope. It's never too late in this life for somebody to turn to Jesus. It's never too late. Until they die in their rebellious sin, in this life, they have a chance. Many of you know the name Mickey Mantle. They're a famous baseball player, fastest guy at his, during his time to run from home plate to first base. Hit 540 home runs. And one uh, in the collective career is an amazing baseball player. He played with many injuries during his life. There was a, a story of um, a reporter going down into the dugout, into the locker room, to get a, a report from Mickey Mantle. And he kept asking, where is he, where is he? And they said, oh, he's in the locker room. And he couldn't find him. Where is he, where is he? He's in the locker room. And they couldn't find him. And then finally somebody said, oh, he's over there in the corner. And, and he went over, and there was this guy that looked like a mummy. He was just wrapped up in ace bandages because he was so hurt. He had so many injuries. And he would play through them. He was an amazing baseball player. He was a terrible human being. A womanizer, adulterer, immoral. He was a drunkard. One time he came to Yankee Stadium so drunk that the coach said, you're not playing. You're not playing today. Just go sit on the dugout. Just sit on the bench. And he went and he sat on the end and he slept the whole game. He just passed out and slept. Ninth inning comes around and the Yankees are down by two runs, and they have uh, two runners on the bases. So if somebody can hit a home run, they would win the game. And so the coach says, can you wake up Mickey Mantle? Just wake him up. Tell him we need him. So they go down into the dugout, totally passed out, drunk man. Wake him up. Wake up. You got a hint. Hit. He goes out. He 
pinch hits for the man he was going to hit, and he slugs a home run. Just boom, done, game. Piece of cake for this guy. Amazing baseball player, terrible human being. And because of his alcoholism, he was dying of cancer in Texas. And he had a friend, second baseman named Bobby Richardson. And Bobby shared at Mickey Mantle's funeral. You can actually listen to it online. And he talked about how as Mickey Mantle was dying, he went into his hospital room and he said, Mickey, do you know Jesus Christ? And Mickey said, no. Never had a need for him. And I've never wanted him. And Bobby says, can I tell you why you need him? And he broke, broke down crying. Mickey Mantle in his utter brokenness hears Bobby Richardson, receives the gospel of Jesus Christ, and becomes saved. Richardson goes home, tells his wife, Mickey is saved. He's a Christian. And his wife says, I highly doubt that. I know this man. I highly doubt that he's saved. And so she goes in and she says, Mick, tell me why you think you're getting to heaven. And Mickey said, with tears flowing from his eyes, because God so loved the world that he gave his only son for me. And whoever believes in him, and I do, will not perish, but will have eternal life. And Bobby's wife walked out and said, yep, he's saved. He's saved. Somebody got to Mickey, and he heard the gospel in the last few days of his life, and Mickey was saved. There's always hope. Even Samson's entire life is just mess after mess, failure after failure, sin after sin. And you get to the end, and you look like, there's no hope for this man. And then in the last moments of his life, he says, God, I have no right to expect anything from you, but I'm asking you, please give me everything. And then he acts, and God lavishes his grace upon Samson, just as he did upon the thief on the cross. Lord, remember me when you go into your kingdom. I deserve the death I'm getting. You're innocent. You don't deserve the death you're getting, and there's nothing that I can do to earn my way into your kingdom. I'm stuck on a tree. Will you please remember me? And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this day you'll be with me in paradise. I am so thankful that God did not give up on Mickey Mantle. I'm so thankful that God did not give up on the thief on the cross. You'll never hear the words uttered from our Savior, I'm sorry, it's too late. I'm so glad that Jesus did not give up, that God did not give up on Samson. And I'm so glad that God did not give up on me. And he'll never give up on me because of what Jesus has done at the cross. So if God doesn't give up on me, and if God doesn't give up on you, then we should not give up on each other. So who is there in your life that you think you've placed them into that lost cause category? I think if I had been living around the time of Saul, Tarsus, walking on the road to Damascus, I would have said, lost cause category. There's no way he's making it. And God says, I'm not giving up on you. And he calls him out and he saves him. I know there's people in our world, family members, that you just look at and you go, it's been too long, too much rebellion, too much sin that's blinded them. 
And I would just plead with you, don't give up on them just like God did not give up on Samson. Maybe it's that last moment on their deathbed that you're able to plead with them. You're going to see God soon and you will see him as judge if you don't turn now and cry out for pardon and cry out for mercy. And there are many who in that moment will say, I don't need it, I don't want it, and they will die in their sins and they will face judgment. But there are those in this world, there are those in this life that when hearing a gracious judge has made a way for you to be pardoned, as they're staring into eternity, they might say, I need that assurance. And you can walk them through these three aspects of Samson's life. What he said in the last dying moments of his life. Oh, you have no right to expect anything from God based on your sin. But he gave you Jesus and he has given you the ability to receive everything. You have no right to expect it. You did nothing to deserve it. But he will lavish it upon you if you would but ask in faith. God did not give up on Samson. We should not give up on those in our families, those around us. We shouldn't give up on those in our church. We're all works in progress. And as God didn't give up on Samson, but was faithful to complete the work that he started, God will be faithful to complete the work that he worked out in you and in me as well. Father, we thank you for the life of Samson. We thank you for the amazing kindness that we see And you saying at the very end of his life, welcome home. That's unbelievable love. That you would throw every single sin that he ever committed, very horrifying sins, gross external sins, gross sexual immorality, You would take every single sin, throw it on to Jesus so that Samson would not perish but have eternal life. So that Samson would not have to bear the penalty for his sins but would be brought in as a son of God. That's amazing grace. We look at it and sometimes our knee-jerk reaction is to say, man, he didn't deserve that to which God help us to hear ourselves and to realize we don't deserve it either. And to cry out to you just like Samson did. I have no right to expect anything, but because of Jesus, I know that you have lavished everything upon me. And I cry out and I plead the blood of Christ. And then we act in faith, just like Samson. God, thank you for this amazing study that we've had with the life of Samson. We can't wait to meet him one day to talk through the the glories and the victories of the gospel with him in heaven. And until that day, may we proclaim the deep, deep love of Jesus that is more amazing than anything we could comprehend. May we proclaim it to those that are lost. May we proclaim it to those that are saved and struggling with sin. May we proclaim it to those who are saved and being sanctified and growing and weary and hopeless. Wherever we are, may we proclaim the amazing love of Jesus, which is all our hope, all our peace, and our one foundation.